From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The U.S. assassination of Iran's top general is ratcheting fears of war around the globe and reawakening the anti-war movement in the United States. In this new decade, in 2020, we're standing up against war. We're standing yeah. up against yeah. occupation. Yeah. We're And as apocalyptic images from Australia emerge of wildfires engulfing up to 25 million acres, we present part two of our coverage of congressional testimony from scientists about oil giant Exxon lying for decades about climate change. When you look at what the oil companies did here is they denied that there was a consensus and at the same time their internal documents show that they knew that there was a consensus. All this and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Chantal James, sitting in for Esther Ivarum. The House of Representatives voted Thursday to approve a war powers resolution restricting President Trump's ability to attack Iran. The yes votes included some Republicans who were not convinced that the Trump administration has delivered a fact-based explanation for its assassination of Iran General Qasem Soleimani one week ago. Lawmakers here in D.C. have also heard from the streets where a revitalized U.S. anti-war movement has led dozens of protests since the killing of Soleimani and since the retaliation by Iran, bombing two U.S. air bases in Iraq. I attended the No New War rally outside the White House on Saturday. In an effort mobilized within days in response to the Trump administration's assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, Answer Coalition, Code Pink, Popular Resistance, and more than 15 other organizations spearheaded protests that took place in 90 U.S. cities. Here in D.C., a crowd of hundreds converged before the White House to make explicit their opposition to U.S. presence in Iraq and its escalated tensions with Iran. A rally emceed by Sean Blackman featured the voices of local and national activists. After rallying, marchers processed a few blocks to the Trump Hotel, where they raised their voices in chants. We bring you some of the voices from Saturday's rally. So it seems that this government has no interest in investing in things that sustain life but wants to invest in things that bring death, destruction, bloodshed, and misery to folks all over this world. And so that is why what we're doing today is so important. Because this, this unity and coming together that we have today is what's really going to strike a blow against these imperial efforts by the United States government. And you all should know that this is not just happening in Washington, D.C. This is a nationwide day of action against U.S. imperialism in Iraq, Iran, and the Middle East. 
We are one of 72, 72 cities and towns in the United States are doing exactly what we're doing now in taking this collective effort. So now uh, I'd like to bring to the microphone Brian Becker, National Director of the Answer Coalition. Please welcome him as he comes. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We're not just here in front of the White House, we're, we're in 72 cities and towns around the United States, and this has happened in three days. This has happened in three days. And what, is it, what does it really indicate? It shows that the people of the United States, the people, whether they're liberal or conservative, Republican, Democrat, independent, socialist, whatever they are, they don't want another Iraq. They don't want another Afghanistan. They don't want another Libya. They don't want another Vietnam. Because guess what? A war with Iran will be more like the war with Vietnam than it was with Iraq. Iran has 80 million people. An educated population, a strong military, a strong economy, whether you like the government or don't like the government, the fact of the matter is the United States, this administration, Donald J. Trump, does not have the right to violate international law, to violate the United Nations Charter, to violate the War Powers Resolution, and start a war of aggression without knowing and he doesn't know, and the generals don't know, what the outcome will be. There's a trending phrase on Twitter right now, and it's World War III. There's a reason for that. All the media is asking us, why is World War III trending? World War III is trending because if the United States goes to war against Iran, which has allies with Russia and China, how would anyone not think that this could be a repeat of World War I and World War II? Those wars were not a fantasy. They actually happened. They happened because leaders made decisions that took the world not only to the brink of catastrophe, but over the brink. Are we going to stand by and let that happen? Are we going to stand by and say to Donald Trump, Oh, well, you are the president, and you have the right to do this? Of course we cannot say yes to that, because it means not only a violation of everything legal, of everything moral, of everything ethical, it's a violation of what it means to be alive. When the U.S. bombs Iranians, they say, well, they're Iranians, they're not our people. Our message here today is the Iranians and the Iraqis and the Palestinians and the Vietnamese and the Koreans are our people. We, we are human beings. We are human beings. We are part of one human family, and we have to stop the war makers. That's why we're here. I want to now introduce Mara Verhain Hilliard. Many of you know her. 
whenever we get arrested, she's our lawyer. The reason, the reason we can protest and not get routinely attacked on the streets of Washington as used to be customary is because her organization, the Partnership for Civil Justice, sued the MPD, they sued the National Park Service, they sued the Capitol Police. That's why we have even a minimal First Amendment protection here in the nation's capital. Let's give a warm welcome to Mara for Hayden Hilliard. short notice and so telling that on such short notice people mobilized here in Lafayette Park in front of the White House and in more than 72 cities all across the United States. People are turning out to say that they're not going to stand by and let the Trump administration or the generals in the Pentagon take this country into another war and wage a war in the Middle East that will have global implications, a war that is so dangerous, so reckless that all of us, all of us here and people all over the United States and people all over the world are now afraid, afraid because you have a man in the White House that has talked about using nuclear weapons. Why can't we use our nuclear weapons, he says. That's the person who is in charge of the nuclear weapons. And all of us are here to say that we're not going to stand by, we will not be silent. It is illegal under the UN Charter. The UN Charter that was ratified in 1945 after World War II because countries came together and said, we don't ever want to have this happen again. The UN Charter, which articles state that no country, and the US ratified the UN Charter in 1945, that no country can wage a war of aggression or threaten another country. And the only time that an act of military force can be taken is in self-defense and the self-defense has to be such that there is an immediate, absolute, overwhelming threat that does not allow for a moment of deliberation. That is not the circumstances we are in. What the administration just did, what Trump just did, was an act of war, and it was illegal. And more than anything, we know it was wrong and it was dangerous. We're talking about the military, talking about the oil companies, and talking about who benefits from these wars and from these threats of wars. I think it's important to talk about the other massive crisis that we're facing right now, which is the climate crisis, which is an extraordinary, existential, absolute, defined threat that without question is going to steal and destroy our children's futures. The any, any hope of our children's futures if we do not act to stop it. And I'm very honored and we're very excited that we have with us now, today, Jane Fonda, who has tirelessly and courageously stood for justice, for peace, and has, for the last month, been in Washington, D.C., week after week, organizing thousands of people to come to Washington, D.C. and in Washington, D.C. to stand up, to demand a Green New Deal, to demand an end to fossil fuels extraction. Under her organizing and brilliant leadership, there are hundreds of people who have taken acts of conscience 
who have risked arrest and acted in civil disobedience because they know that the threat is real and that it's incumbent upon the people to act. So I'm very, very pleased and thrilled to introduce Jane Fonda. I wanted to be here because I wanted to express to everybody that the climate movement and the peace movement must be one movement. That's right. That's right. The younger people here should know that all of the wars that have been fought since you've been born have been fought over oil. The bombing in New York and here at the Pentagon and elsewhere on 9-11 was about oil. That's right. Because for decades, U.S. troops were stationed in the Middle East to guard oil. And troops were stationed on sacred sites, sites that are sacred, holy to the people of that region. Did we not know that? Did we once again not learn the lessons of Vietnam? Not bother to understand the people that we were shaming and insulting? Not to mention killing? And the environments there that we are destroying and the children that are dying of toxins because of the gassing? And all of the things that the U.S. has been doing there so, please understand, the Pentagon is the biggest institutional user of fossil fuel in the world. That we can't anymore lose lives and kill people and ruin an environment because of oil and fossil fuels. Brian said that the war in Iraq was started by Bush. No, it was started by Cheney. Halliburton. It's always been about oil. Oil is killing people in the Middle East. The wars around oil are killing them, and oil is killing us here, killing our climate, causing fires in Australia. We have to stop it. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. Fossil fuel industry and take back our democracy. Thank you. No justice, no peace. U.S. out of the Middle East. No justice, no peace. U.S. out of the Middle East. No justice. You're listening to Voices from the No New War Protest, sponsored by Answer Coalition, Code Pink, and other organizations, which took place on Saturday, January 4th, 2020. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
Once again, of course, we are here standing against this criminal assault on Iraq, on Iran, on the Middle East, this campaign of never-ending war being perpetrated by the United States, being perpetrated by uh, the major powers of the world across the Middle East and certainly uh, across the globe. And right about now, uh, I'm going to bring up a seasoned peace activist, someone who was on the front lines during the effort. Some of you may remember not long ago uh, when we were protecting the Venezuelan embassy, when this country, when this country, when this government was trying to support a coup in the country of Venezuela that ultimately failed. And so right now, I am going to bring up Kevin Zeese from Popular Resistance. Please welcome him as he comes. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you all for being out here. Thank, thanks to those who supported us as we face federal charges for protecting the Venezuelan embassy. Uh, we really appreciate our trial be coming up in February. Uh, we have a number of embassy protectors here today. And so thank you all for being part of that effort. It was a group effort. It was a collective. I want to thank Jane Fonda for uniting the peace movement with the climate movement. Uniting these movements will create transformational change. Transformational change. This is the decade that we will face up to climate, and we will face up to the Pentagon. We will put in place a peace economy based on clean, renewable, and sustainable energy. And that is the future we are developing. The reckless attack, the reckless assassination by Donald Trump against the commander of the Iranian forces is living in the past. That is a war for oil. We don't need any wars for oil. That era is over. In fact, the era of the United States causing chaos in the Middle East needs to end. Not only do we want to stop the war with Iran, we want the United States out of the Middle East. Since 2003, since the United States attacked and occupied Iraq, uh, since then the U.S. has destroyed Libya, Obama started the war, in Syria, right. still going on. We have caused chaos throughout that region. Yemen is being slaughtered by United States and Saudi Arabia. Right. And what we're seeing now, we're starting to come into focus on a reality. We are in a global world war right now. The Middle East is the battleground for that war. Donald Trump ran on a campaign claiming the wars in the Middle East were, were a mistake, were wasting trillions of dollars, and here he is escalating those wars. We need to make it clear to those who supported Donald Trump that he was a con man. They lied to them. We know Hillary was a warmonger, we know that. But Donald Trump pretended to be opposed to Middle East wars, and here he is violating international law and escalating those wars. So it's time for us in 2020 to build a peace movement that cannot be ignored. This, you here today, you here today are on the cutting edge of that new movement. This movement's going to expand this year to tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands. This is just the beginning. Today, 
more than 80 cities in, in 38 states are holding protests to say no to the war in Iraq, to say U.S. out of the Middle East. We are going to accomplish these objectives. We're going to create a new world. The peace economy is our future. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. Up next to speak, we are going to have Hadra from Students Against Imperialism at George Washington University. Let's give her a warm welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming out here. Uh, my name is Hadra. I'm with the George Washington University Students Against Imperialism. We're an anti-war, anti-militarization, anti-occupation, anti-apartheid group on campus. Standing up against... Yeah. Students standing up against war, endless war, endless occupation, endless domination that the United States has been inflicting upon the global south for centuries. And right now, plain as day, the mask is off. The mask is off on U.S. imperialism. The media, CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, they're parroting their Pentagon and State Department lies. Democrats and Republicans alike just passed a $738 billion defense budget. We can clearly tell $738 billion in the hands of big CEOs at Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing is money out of the pockets, out of the food out of the mouths of Americans, of poor working Americans. And on climate change, and the note of climate change, where we're in a current climate catastrophe. Australia is currently burning. Indonesia is underwater right now. And this war for oil, this onslaught, never ends. Bodies will pile. The earth will be destroyed further and further while the rich get richer. And we're here to say no. That's right. You know, they, the U.S., the imperialists on both sides, the media, the corporate media, fed us the lie that we had to go into Iraq. If you look at Iraq now, with the use of depleted uranium, you have generations, you have babies being born with, with mutations. That's right. You have increased cancer rates. This is war. This is war and violence that continue for generations. And we're here today. I want to thank all of you for being here today, the young people, the older people, everyone. Because in this new decade, in 2020, we're standing up against war. We're standing yeah. up against yeah. occupation. Yeah. We're standing up against U.S. imperialism. Yeah. We are building an anti-war movement. And we're not going to let this happen anymore. No more business as usual. We're standing up. We're not feeding the lies they, they serve to us on both sides. We're standing up. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep the intensity going. Let's go in with a chance. Uh, stop the sanctions and the war. No more violence on the poor. Stop the sanctions and the war. No more violence on the poor. That was Hadra from Students Against Imperialism at George Washington University. 
Speaking at the No New War protest sponsored by Answer Coalition and other organizations, which recovered on Saturday, January 4, 2020. Since Saturday's protests, there have been multiple developments in the situation with Iran. On Thursday, the House passed a war powers resolution to limit the president's powers in taking further military action. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Back when Eisenhower was the president, golf courses is where most of his time was spent. So I never really listened to what the president said because in general I believed that the general was politically dead. But he always seemed to know when the muscles were about to be flexed. Because I remember him saying something, mumbling something about a military-industrial complex. Americans no longer fight to keep their shores safe just to keep the jobs going in the arms-making workplace. And then they pretend to be gripped by some sort of political reflex. But all they're doing is paying dues to the military-industrial complex. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet to a cemetery. Turning the planet to a cemetery. Turning the planet to a cemetery. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Chantal James, sitting in for Esther Verum. As apocalyptic images from Australia emerge, of wildfires engulfing up to 25 million acres. We present part two of our coverage of congressional testimony from scientists about oil giant Exxon lying for decades about climate change. Today, January 10th, tens of thousands of youth climate activists are set to march across Australia to protest their government's inaction to combat the environmental crisis. Today's segment begins with questions from Representative Ayanna Presley, Democrat of Massachusetts. There's a, an old adage in my home community that uh, says when everyone else catches a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. Uh, the point is everyone is sick. The issue is just at varying degrees of disease, of illness. And that is certainly true when it comes to the climate crisis. It is felt by all of us, but the greatest burdens are borne by the most vulnerable people of color, low-income communities, immigrants, and non-native English speakers, all communities most at risk of poor health outcomes and least able to relocate or to rebuild after a disaster. In my district, the Massachusetts 7th, one of the most vibrant, diverse, and unequal districts in the country is certainly not immune. From Chelsea to East Boston, many of my residents are vulnerable to rising sea levels, extreme heat, and poor air quality. In the Chinatown neighborhood in Boston, a predominantly immigrant and low-income community that falls at the crossroads of two major highways, my constituents breathe some of the most toxic air in all of Boston. Over the last several years, asthma rates at the Josiah Quincy Elementary School, which is in the heart of Chinatown, have jumped from 18 to 25%. Uh, adding insult to injury, these issues aren't a coincidence. 
They are outcomes born out of decades of racial, economic, and social injustice. Man-made policies that have been worsened by the greed and deceit of the oil and fossil fuel industry. Now, burning fossil fuels uh, are one of the greatest drivers of the climate crisis, and the oil industry has worsened the problem by delaying action through its denial campaign and engaging in insidious campaigns to directly embed themselves in communities' most vulnerable. Dr. Ali, why do oil companies locate their facilities in these communities, and how do cities depend on them? In many instances, they feel that these are the areas of least resistance. When these companies move in, property values go down for the folks who are on the fence lines. Uh, healthcare costs go up um, because they are being impacted. Um, and as you said, there is a systemic racism aspect to this, and that's one of the reasons that there's a conversation about civil rights. So we have to be focused because what we find is that communities are being not only impacted but broken apart. Communities like Princeville, North Carolina, which was hit, founded by freed slaves, and hit by 100-year and 500-year floods. You have places like in Louisiana where indigenous folks have had to move down at the Isle de Charles, had to move away from their traditional lands. Um, we can literally go down the list. You can look in the southwest Detroit in the 42817, um, where folks are literally right next to a refinery, and they literally can't breathe. I wish that the members would actually go to these communities and spend real time. When you go to the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, primarily a Latino, hardworking community, when you roll the windows down in your car, you feel like you're breathing in gasoline fumes, and that is from the refineries. Thank you, Dr. Ali. And speaking of Texas and Houston specifically, a major hub of, for the oil and gas industry and is known as the world capital of energy. Uh, Houston was also hit very hard by Hurricane Harvey, a storm which reached unprecedented levels of intensity because of climate change. Harvey dumped so much rain on Houston that the National Weather Service had to add new colors to its rainfall chart in order to effectively map it. We know evacuation can be expensive. Dr. Ali, yes or no? When massive storms occur like Hurricanes Harvey or Maria, is everyone able to evacuate? No. And who is usually left behind? People of color, low-income communities, and sometimes indigenous populations. Eleven different oil refineries, including Exxon's Baytown, were forced to shut down their operations and flare off excess chemicals. Now, oil refineries are designed to run 24-7, so when they shut down, it causes massive spikes in pollution. According to a 2017 news report, Baytown, quote, released about double the amount of volatile organic compound, a broad category of air toxics, than its permit normally allows, unquote. Dr. Ali, how does this excess pollution affect the people who aren't able to evacuate the area? They're trapped and they're trapped and they are exposed to these chemicals and they have breathing difficulties. You find these asthma bursts that happen. You find people developing liver and kidney disease um, because of these additional emissions that are going on. Thank you. It's clear we must act today. Uh, we must act in this moment. And I second the uh, impassioned comments of uh, my colleague, uh, Representative Gomez, and, uh, and also express my pride in that this topic uh, is before the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Committee today, appropriately so. I now recognize Mr. Massey for five minutes of questions. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Ali, you stated that most of the refineries are located in minority communities. Is that true? I said disproportionately located. Disproportionately yes. located. Can you give us an example of one that's not? That's not located yeah. in a community of color? 
No, I can't. Not at this Let time. me give you an example. There's one in my district, and uh, it provides jobs. It, it's actually one of, the, one of the best things that's ever happened to our district because we have a problem with brain drain in eastern Kentucky. People grow up, they want to get an education and get a career in STEM, and the one opportunity we have is at that refinery. I worked there three summers while I was a college student. It was the only opportunity that I had to get a job in science, technology, engineering, and math was that refinery. If you could wave a wand and make those refineries go away from the, the communities of color, would you do that? I always honor the work that has happened in the past when we didn't have other opportunities for different types of energy sources. I would. Would, would your community be better, would those communities be better off or worse off without those jobs in those refineries? That's why we talk about a just transition. That's why we talk about getting advanced manufacturing opportunities. That's why we talk about solar, wind, thermal. Could you answer all my question? Are you better off or worse off with that refinery in those communities? You're worse off because of the health impacts and you can get other types of industries well, in those areas. If, if they leave those communities, please send another one to my congressional district because it, is, it has been a godsend to our congressional district, particularly for the people who need jobs. The gentleman's time has expired. Thank you can you. answer the question if you'd like to do. We have a, a huge amount of opportunity if we make the proper investments in wind, solar, thermal, tidal, and wave energy, and some of the new developing opportunities that exist in that space. I come from Appalachia. I understand and I honor the culture of coal in the past, but I also see that other countries will take advantage of these new opportunities and this new clean economy if we don't make those investments. These are jobs that can stay here at home. We can train our workers. We can make sure that folks who never had an opportunity to have businesses can start their own businesses. And I hope that we can make sure that in Kentucky and West Virginia and Ohio and all across our country, we create these new opportunities for folks. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm gonna recognize myself now for five minutes. I want to start with this, uh, Dr. Oreskes. I've noticed a, a kind of progression in the arguments denying the science. Some uh, used to be just a, a flat, flat out categorical denial that climate change is taking place. Then I started to notice that some of the skeptics were accepting the science, but they were denying that there was uh, a role that humanity had played. They said, well, there's sort of a natural ebb and flow in the climate. Then I noticed some of them were accepting that there was an anthropocentric role in climate change, but they were arguing that it's actually good for us, that the heating of the climate uh, will actually have some positive effects. Others of them say, well, it's bad for us, but it's too late at this point to do anything, so we may as well enjoy it. And I wonder, has anybody tried to actually compile a comprehensive study of the different the changes in the evolution of climate denialism? Yes, thank you for that question. And in our own work, we've documented this, so have a number of other scholars. And I think we've actually just witnessed this in this very last few minutes. So one of the denying and disinforming talking points now is this claim that carbon pricing will increase the price of energy. That is false, and it's false on two levels. It's false because it won't increase the price of energy, it will increase the price of carbon-based energy, and that's the whole point. The point is to level the playing field because carbon-based fuels have received gigantic subsidies 
both in the United States and around the globe, and to allow renewables to compete on a level playing field. In addition, and this is very important, so please bear with me, we used a pricing system to deal with acid rain, and that was brought in by a Republican president, President George H.W. Bush, who under the Clean Air Act amendments, which he signed, introduced a, a pricing system for the pollution that caused acid rain. It was an emissions trading system, and everyone who was opposed it said it was going to increase the price of electricity, and all the same arguments that we've just been heard today were used. And guess what? The price of electricity in the Midwest fell, and we cleaned up acid rain. I'm, I'm curious about what happens to climate scientists. You mentioned someone named Benjamin Santer. Can you tell us what happened to him? Yes. Well, one of the things we've seen over the last 30 years are personal attacks on climate scientists designed to undermine the integrity and credibility so that the American people will distrust scientists. So uh, Ben is the scientist who first proved that climate change could not be uh, attributed to changes in solar radiation. He was the lead author of a crucial chapter in the second assessment report of the IPCC, and he became a target of an organized systematic effort led by the George C. Marshall Institute, one of the think tanks that we've written about, accusing him of scientific misconduct, accusing him of fraud, and even though every single person who was involved in the report denied those claims, all said that he had done nothing wrong, this was repeated over and over again. And I'd like to so point he, out... So he was actually demonized and vilified by the oil industry correct. rather than him be demonizing them. Exactly. Thank yeah. you. And if I could just point out, the George C. Marshall Institute folded a few years ago. They became the CO2 Coalition. Uh, Energy 45, which Ms. Gunasekera represents, is part of that coalition. This is a coalition with a history of personal attacks on climate scientists, personal attacks on loyal employees of the U.S. National Laboratory System. Thank you. So the, the denial campaign goes beyond distortion of the climate science. It actually goes into intimidating and silencing dissenters. Uh, Ms. Eubanks, do I understand correctly that after the New York Attorney General began taking action against Exxon, that Exxon sued the Attorney General. Is that right, Ms. Eubanks? Uh, yes, Exxon sued the Attorney General, and it also sued... Where? In Texas. Well, why in Texas? Friendly Forum. Uh, they went, was there any merit to their suit? They, th that was a frivolous lawsuit. Uh, the, the New York Attorney General lawsuit, that's not a frivolous... Was it thrown out? Was that lawsuit thrown out? Or? So, far, so far it has been, but what was interesting, furthermore, is that Exxon subpoenaed all of the attorneys who appeared at a meeting in La Jolla back a few years ago for any information that they had about a gathering to discuss climate change and responses to it. So how does this compare to strategies that were undertaken by the tobacco companies which retaliated against people criticizing them? They're very much the same. Um, both organizations, tobacco, big oil, lied about what they knew and when they knew it. Yeah. And as a result, you know, issue, people died, basically. Thank you. And now we go to the gentle lady from New York, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, for her five minutes of questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I'd like to thank all of our witnesses for coming here today to testify on very important aspects of one of the most pressing issues of our time. Dr. Garvey and Dr. Hofford, is climate change real? Uh, climate change has been taking place over all geologic history. Climate change from fossil fuels is not only real, but it is happening at much higher rates than we have recorded in the geologic record. Thank you, Mr. So there Hufford. is I'm no sorry, doubt I, about that. Thank you, Mr. Hufford. I apologize. I have to be expeditious with 
with how I uh, ask these questions. Um, Dr. Garvey, would you agree? Yes, I would. Are large corporations' use of fossil fuels one of the primary causes of climate change that we're seeing today? Yes, is the simple answer. Same here. Yes. And how long has there been roughly a scientific consensus surrounding those two facts? I would say uh, roughly 20 years, and that consensus is of actively working scientists who publish in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, thank you. And we have documents going back decades showing specifically that Exxon Mobil or Exxon knew about climate change. In 1977, Exxon scientist James Black told Exxon's top executives that, quote, the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release from the burning of fossil fuels. This was in 1977. This was followed by an internal memo in 1979, which stated that, quote, the present trend of fossil fuel consumption will cause dramatic environmental effects before the year 2050. Dr. Garvey, would you say uh, that the folks you worked with at Exxon agreed with the consensus on climate change? Hardly. Dr. Hoffert? I can testify to after 1981 because I was working at Exxon with a, with a group that was doing the calculations, and of course, uh, we did know that. Understood. Uh, Dr. Hoffert, your work with Exxon was focused on the carbon cycle and climate modeling. I have yes. a slide up here. Are you familiar with this graph from 1982? I believe I am, but oh, I just saw the graph. Yeah, that that is a calculation. I'm not sure who specifically to attribute it to, it, it could have been done by either of the researchers I was working Can with. Can you uh, it, briefly yeah. explain what it shows? Sure. Uh, what it shows is a projection into the future of uh, carbon dioxide levels and uh, climate change associated with those uh, carbon dioxide levels coming from fossil fuels. I don't have time for a detailed explanation, right. but, but that's briefly, it. Briefly, and, and it's a very accurate representation of what today's climate change actually is. So this was a model from 1982 with that, right. startlingly accurate projections into the present That's day. correct. The orange line shows the actual level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through this year. Mm -hmm. And the blue line shows the actual average temperature change. So in 1982, Exxon accurately, 1982, seven years before I was even born, Exxon accurately predicted that by this year, 2019, the Earth would hit a carbon dioxide concentration of 415 parts per million and a temperature increase of one degree Celsius. Dr. Hoffert, is that correct? We were excellent scientists. <laughs> yes, you were. Yes, you were. So they knew. Mm -hmm. They knew, and I, I presume they knew what some of the consequences of that one degree Celsius change would be. Some of them, not all. Absolutely. I would like to have an opportunity to discuss that if someone asks me. Uh, Dr. Hoffert, you have previously said that Exxon's historic denial was immoral and greatly set back efforts to address climate change. That's correct. Yes? I, it is correct that I said that. I have good reason to say it. And in 1998, API's Global Science uh, Communications Team Action Plan, which involved Exxon, Chevron, Southern mm -hmm. Company, and more, laid out the industry's denial campaign. They knew that they were going to dump 
unknown at that time amounts of money, but a large investment in a climate denial and doubt campaign in, in the United States around the world, correct? Uh, that's and my, that's my, to the best of my knowledge, that's true. They said, but victory, I didn't know of that personally. They said victory would be achieved when, quote, average citizens, quote unquote, understand uncertainties in climate science. Dr. Garvey, would you say these goals accurately represent the mission of Exxon in the past and today? Not in the past, certainly not when I was there. Mm -hmm. Would you say that currently the, the current uh, environment that is fostered around doubt on scientific mm -hmm. consensus could be a result of lobbying from the fossil fuel industry? I would say so, but I should let my cohort, you should answer that. Sure, Dr. Reskis. Uh, 350 pages on that in my book, Merchants of Doubt. Thank you very much. All right. Th thank you very much, uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez. I think what we'll do, because we're really getting somewhere here, is uh, take another round of questions, if, if everybody uh, would be up for it. I'd like to pick up where Ms. Ocasio-Cortez left off with the 1998 Victory Memo published by the American Petroleum Institute, and if we can put that up on the screen. Ms. Eubanks, let me come to you. You were the prosecutor of the Department of Justice who led the racketeering case against big tobacco. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Um, does this situation remind you of the tobacco case? As I understand it, the tobacco companies were perfectly well aware of the connection between smoking and cancer, but they did everything in their power to obfuscate the connection and to confuse the public. And that caused, of course, a lot of unnecessary death from cancer. Are we in a similar posture with respect to the oil industry's suppression of the truth about uh, climate change and the confusion of the public? Yes, it's very similar. In fact, what the uh, government did in regards to the tobacco industry is it filed a racketeering case based upon the misrepresentations that were made. And they're very similar when you look at what the oil companies did here is they denied that there was a consensus and at the same time, their internal documents show that they knew that there was a consensus. But, but on their behalf, I mean, all they were really saying was there's uncertainty. Everything about life is uncertain and scientists are paid to ask questions. What was really wrong with them saying, we don't know, it's not sure, it's uncertain? Uh, could, could the suggestion of uncertainty actually constitute actionable fraud against the public? Well, it really wasn't just uncertainty. You can tell from the internal documents that they were certain. So they were misrepresenting factually what the knowledge was at the time and therefore delayed any action that could have gotten us to solutions much quicker. So the representation of uncertainty in the scientific field when, in fact, there is a certainty of scientific consensus is itself actionable fraud. Yes, it is. And it was in the, the RICO case in tobacco. And there was an enterprise, a group of organizations, just like we see in the Victory Memo, who got together to do this, to work and coordinate their activities. And the United States prevailed in that case in the tobacco litigation, and many people at the time said that that was an improper use of RICO. It was sustained all the way up the appeal channel. Okay. Uh, Dr. Ali, I read an interesting book by Jared Diamond called Collapse, in which he talks about how civilizations collapse. And one of the key signs he invokes is when the governmental process is captured by specific subgroups, small special interest groups, to the exclusion of the interests of the many. Do you think we are in a situation where our energy policy, our environmental policy, our public policy has been dictated 
by a small subgroup of the society. And what we're trying to do now, at least what some people are trying to do, is to struggle for a broader representation in terms of government policy. Yeah, the, the vast majority of citizens in our country know that climate change is real and they want real action on it. But we have, in my work at the Environmental Protection Agency and in other jobs that I've had, I've seen that there is that small group that have had huge influence uh, in our policy. Um, and I see that influence also shown here on Capitol Hill. Are, are there any other countries on Earth where the scientific consensus on climate change is being doubted and interrogated by paid climate skeptics? Are there entire industries in the UK or Germany or France or Canada or Mexico where people, people's job is to go out and to try to cast doubt on the scientific consensus? Yes, yes. Dr. one of the things we showed in our work is that this began in the United States. It was largely funded by American industries, but it has spread. We now do see paid climate denial in Australia, a little bit in Canada, and a little bit in the United Kingdom. But those are the only places, and we can show that it came from the United States. Okay, my time is up, and I will uh, come now to uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez for your final five minutes of questioning. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Uh, Ms. Gunasakara, um, you're here advocating, I, I, mentioned, I heard you mention the CO2 coalition a few times. You believe they should have a credible seat at the table in climate policy, correct? Yeah, I believe all scientists should sure. have a credible seat Thank at you. the table. So the CO2 coalition, are you aware that they are primarily funded by the Mercer family and the Koch brothers? So I'm not familiar with um, the, the makings of the institution. I just recently sure. came on board as an advisor so um, the, that, that works with them, but I'm not a part of the, um, the infrastructure, I so understand. to speak. So you may be unwitting to the fact that this coalition that you're a part of is funded by the Mercer family and the Koch brothers. Are you aware that the Koch brothers own oil refineries across several states in the United States and control some 4,000 miles of gas pipeline and infrastructure? Yes. Do you think that there may be any role in their financing with the CO2 coalition with the advancement of their private interests? Again, I don't know about the financing with regard to the CO2 coalition. Um, I'll say my engagement with them, though, is, is not unwitting. unwitting. Um, it, is, it, is, it is active and inspired and educated because a lot of these folks are scientists that have long been diminished and ignored. And has provided a platform um, for them to provide reality and balance in the okay. context of the climate discussion. Understood. Thank you for your testimony that you are not unwitting working for the Koch brothers. Uh, Mr. Dr. Ali, <laughs> we don't often think about climate change as a civil rights issue, but global warming is already wreaking havoc and displacing populations across the country and around the world. I've seen your work um, in climate justice and environmental justice. Can you talk to me a little bit about the consequences for communities of color on not acting on climate change? If we don't act, then we are going to lose more lives. We're going to lose more African-American lives, more Latinx lives, more Asian Pacific Islander lives, more indigenous lives. We're going to lose more lives of white, uh, low-income brothers and sisters as well because all of them are the ones who are placed right on the front lines of many of these things that are going on. When you look at all of these places where the flooding is going on, 
You, you find that there are poor people who are there. You find that there are communities of colors who are the ones who, after they're hit, they can't come back home. If you look in the little PD area in South Carolina, the little PD River, folks who were hit by the floods that came through there now have the burden of having to raise their homes to be able to get insurance uh, and to be able to come back home. And if they lose their homes, then they lose that generational wealth. Mm-hmm. And we see these things playing out all across the country. Do you, do you recall roughly how many people died in Hurricane Katrina? 3,000 plus. 3,000. Do you recall how many died in Hurricane Maria? Uh, oh, oh uh, it, it, over 3,000. Yeah, it's around 3,000 yeah. as well. So yeah. we're talking about 6,000 predominantly black and brown lives yeah. that are wiped out. And is, in terms of the science and the modeling, um, do we see largely that it's the global south and communities of color that may be bearing the brunt of the initial havoc from climate change? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, and, and least likely to be able to escape or to, to make the transitions that others who maybe have more wealth can do. And in terms of, of that wealth, the people who are producing climate change, the folks that are responsible for the largest amount of emissions or communities or corporations, they tend to be predominantly white, correct? Yes, and every study backs that up. And so um, I think it's important that we put into context here, there's a difference between an electricity bill and people's lives. You know, my own grandfather died in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, and we can't act as though the inertia and history of colonization doesn't play a role in this, that we didn't treat their lives equally as if a different community were hit. Can you speak a little bit more to some of the specific communities that you've encountered in your work and the climate injustices that you've witnessed? Every place from Alaska with the Gwich'in people and a number of others who are losing their culture. They can no longer fish and hunt uh, in the places because of the changes that are happening. Along the Gulf Coast, when you go to Cancer Alley and you see between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, you know, African-American communities, other low-income communities who moved there after slavery was there, then all of these petrochemical facilities, literally as far as you can see, chemical plants, petrochemical plants, all these different things, and the folks can't escape because their housing values have now decreased mm-hmm. so much that they can't move anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You can literally go across our country. Uh, and see these impacts that are happening. And that's the most frustrating thing about these conversations, is that we never talk about people's lives. We don't talk about people's lives in Appalachia in a serious way about the public health impacts that are happening to them. We don't talk about the people in the Rust Belt and the public health impacts that are happening and how their lives are being cut short also. We don't have a serious conversation. So when we talk about wind and solar and thermal and all these other opportunities, we do a disservice to our most vulnerable communities. We don't provide these new sets of opportunities for them. And when we prop up and support this fossil fuel industry that is impacting their lives, then we have some culpability in that. Mm -hmm. And I know no one is intentionally trying to kill people and hurt people. This issue of the environment has become one that has become politicized, and it shouldn't be. And we do not have to choose between the environment and jobs. That is a 20th century paradigm that no longer can be in place because the IPCC report, the National Climate Assessment report, they are very clear. These scientists are not biased. They are telling us what's about to happen 
And if we are not willing to do what's right, then we are responsible for our children's lives and our children's children's lives are going to have to deal with these impacts. All right. The gentlelady's time has expired. Thank you for that answer. Before I close, uh, for the record, I want to introduce four Exxon internal memoranda dated June 6, 1978, October 16, 1979, August 3, 1998, and October 13, 1997, as well as the April 3, 1998 American Petroleum Institute Action Plan. Without objection, those will be admitted into the record. I want to thank all of our witnesses for really a remarkable presentation. It was uh, edifying and educational for us. Nothing was done of more importance today than what you all have done, and uh, future generations uh, will thank all of you. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland will have the last word on today's show. That was the last of two segments highlighting the voices of scientists and other climate justice advocates during that first-ever congressional hearing on the deception of Exxon and other oil companies who knew decades ago about the catastrophic impact that burning fossil fuels would cause, but lied about or buried their findings. Those testifying included Martin Huffert, former Exxon consultant and professor, Ed Garvey, former Exxon scientist, Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard University, Susan Eubanks, attorney with the Henderson Law Firm, and Mustafa Ali, vice president at the National Wildlife Foundation. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. The music we played this hour included Gil Scott Heron Work For Peace and... Robert Glasper, Jelly's Debiner. I'm Chantal James, sitting in for Esther Verum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.